Hey, mate, how are you? Good I to see you, bud. Little birdie, Tommy, you've been doing stand-up, is it, at the comedy store? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> how did that go? Yeah, well, it was, <laughs> was pretty good, actually, yeah. Sorry? Yeah, it was fine. It's pretty easy. Just get up there, tell a couple of jokes and walk off. I found it, you know. For... <laughs> yeah, easy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But sort of what I do, it's not, yeah, I just, not easy. I just think 90% of it's just confidence, isn't it? Yeah, well, I suppose so. You can sort of make people laugh. Shall uh, I tell you one of my jokes? If you like. Uh, what is the only sport that begins with a T? I don't know. Golf. <laughs> don't give up the day job. <laughs> when you get a day job, don't give it up. Uh, let's get on with it. ESPN, Head in the Game. Yes, this is Head in the Game, your essential guide to one of the week's major sporting events. I'm Jamie Lang, and this week we get up close and personal with the Champions League. It's quarter-final time with four English clubs in the last eight for the first time in more than a decade. Now, later in the show, we'll speak to Head in the Game's presenter, Rachel Stringer, who is currently on Champions League duty in Barcelona, apparently. Now, it's welcome back to comedian, writer, actor, my very good friend, Mr. Alex Lowe. Here's... Alex, great oh, to be back. You just took my whole. Oh, sorry. I, I just I, the whole. Did, I, did, I didn't take your whole. You but... did. My, the whole point of it was I meant to tee you up with a little bit of pause and then go into it. Okay, <laughs> it's you... great to be back. And before we talk to our first guest, let's get voices quintessential rundown to all things Champions League in just sixty seconds. The UEFA Champions League began as the European Cup in 1955, before the format was changed to a league system in 1992. Real Madrid are the most successful club in the tournament's history, securing their 13th victory in last year's win over Liverpool. Cristiano Ronaldo is the only player to score in three finals, while Clarence Seedorf is the only player to win the trophy with three different clubs. Nottingham Forest boasts the unusual feat of having won the UEFA Champions League more often than they've won the domestic title. The Champions League anthem, you know the one, was written by British composer Tony Britton in 1992, and is an adaptation adaptation of Handel Zadok the Priest. Any team that wins the Champions League three years in a row, or five times overall, wins the right to retain a full-sized replica of the trophy. Juventus are the unluckiest Champions League team, having lost six finals, winning just one title. Patrice Evra is the unluckiest player, being a losing finalist four times. It's the most watched annual sporting event in the world, with the 2013 finale between Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich the highest TV rating so far, with 360 million viewers watching in more than 200 countries. Oh, I did it. Time for a little lie down. Now, you may have noticed that my usual podcast partner, Rachel Stringer, isn't here this week. She's actually on Champions League duty in Barcelona. Rachel, how could you leave me, by the way? Barcelona or Soho? Mm. No brainer, really, isn't it? <laughs> Wait, hang on. Are you just saying that you're on holiday then? I am working. But, you know, work and play. You've got a bit, bit in moderation, haven't you? <laughs> Why didn't you invite me? I will speak to my other producer. I mean, I couldn't have done. One of us had to stay in Manorship, <laughs> didn't they? <laughs> uh, also, Rachel, by the way, I've got uh, someone in to replace you. Um, Alex Lowe. Say hi, Alex. Hi, Alex. Hi, hi, Rachel. How are you? I found some of your stuff in the studio here. No, you didn't. <laughs> Who are you interviewing and talking to out there? Um, we're chatting to Ida Johnson tomorrow. So he's a former Champions League winner. Um, played for Chelsea, Barcelona. Yeah, we'll get a few words from him about Barcelona's chances. And also tell me, what's the mood out there? Are the locals, are they confident? Are they nervous? Are they freaking out? What, what is it like? Barcelona fans don't get nervous. Absolutely not. We've been chatting to people all around and about today, around the city. And um, even now, they're super excited. Um, they're going to beat United. 
they think they're going to make it to semi-finals, um, yeah, they're going to go all the way. They haven't won it in a few years, so you know, they need to sort something out. I feel like Barcelona fans always think they're going to win. They always have that air of confidence, don't they? Well, not every football fan. I'm a Forest fan. I always think we're going to win, and we never do. Also, with Real Madrid out, Barcelona are the only Spanish team left versus R4. Now, if you had to pick a winner, who do you think it's going to be? If I had to pick a winner, you got to pick who a winner. I think it will be probably Barcelona. If they obviously get through this next one, this next tie with uh, with United, but that's obviously the big question: Will they do that? Will they not? United obviously were pretty good in the last round against PSG. Excellent comeback, if you, if you can remember that when Rashford scored the last minute penalty after a bit of a VRR, like VAR kind of dilemma. So I don't know. If you if you look at United's past form. And what they did over there, I think it was like the first time ever in history any team in the Champions League has gone two or more goals behind the first leg and gone on to go through. Who knows? They might just beat Barcelona. They're, they're tied at home first, isn't it? So they're always good at Old Trafford. And then if they get a, you know, a lead or, or a good result going into the second leg, then um, it's all open. But obviously four teams in. I'd like to see one go through because I was at the final last year in Kiev when Liverpool were obviously there and... The atmosphere which the English fans bring is just insane. I would love to go again this year, which I think I'm going to, and uh, see, yeah, an English team in the final. It's just, regardless of who you support, you support them on the day. OK, Rachel, so I've got a big question for you. Go on. What are you bringing me back from Barcelona? Oh, my goodness, I'm so glad you asked. I bought you something today. On the steps outside the, like, Olympic kind of stadium, there was a few men selling some trinkets, and I um, actually picked your thing, mate, so... Just you wait and see. I'll show you next week. I don't really want that, though. I want you to get a signed Barcelona shirt with Messi's signature on it. Well, I might be able to get you good Johnsons, but Messi, that would be a bit tricky. Okay, good Johnsons will be fine. Get good Johnsons. <laughs> Rachel, good Johnsons hey, listen, I won't steal you any longer. Go and sign yourself in Barcelona. Good luck. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Cheers. <laughs> We'll get the fans' eye view of the Champions League later, but first we're joined by ESPN senior writer, broadcaster, and probably the foremost authority on European football, it's Gab Marcotti. How are you? Very well. Great to be with you guys. Gab, okay, in all your experience of sort of Champions League matches, what is your favourite one ever? Or one that sticks out in your mind? Well, the one that sticks out in my mind is the one which I think sticks out in a lot of people's minds. Istanbul, AC Milan against Liverpool, where we really entered the twilight zone. It's one of the most one-sided finals I can remember. AC Milan 3-0 up. And then Liverpool, I think, scored three times in the space of eight minutes. It ends up going to penalties. Jersey Dudek, (laughs) mad bouncing ball of the goalkeeper. Jamie Carragher, who I think is carrying an injury. Both his legs are paralyzed, but he somehow, you know, you're kind of reminding me of the Monty Python skit where he says, you know, it's just a flesh wound. It was just absolutely heroic. But one of the, the great stories that I personally witnessed and I thought was so odd involved Jose Mourinho. It was a 2009-2010 Champions League final in Madrid, Inter Milan against Bayern. So Inter Milan, they've won the European Cup for the first time in 35 years, sorry, 45 years, yeah, since 1965. Everybody's ecstatic. Jose Mourinho, though, before the match, had already been negotiating to leave the club to go to Real Madrid. You know, they win, so it's kind of like his work is done here. We were standing afterwards in what they call the, the mix zone, where you can talk to players as they make their way to the bus. And we can see the inter-team bus, and there's like a driveway that VAPs take to, to drive in and out of the ground. We see Mourinho, and he walks out. He waves to the inter-team bus. 
Real Madrid president comes out and they both get into a limo. The car goes about 20 yards or so and then it stops and the door flies open and Inter had a player named, uh, named Marco Materazzi who you may recall was the guy who got headbutted by Zinedine Zidane 2006 World Cup final. And while all the Inter players are on the bus, he was just kind of like loitering around, standing around. Mourinho sprints up to where the bus is and just hugs him and starts crying. Just like tears. This is on YouTube, by the way. You can go and check this out. There's like a long, you know, one of those embraces that almost kind of like lasts too long. And then he leaves and he gets back into the car with Real Madrid and goes and, and joins Real Madrid. And if you were a cynic, as some people are, you might suggest that Mourinho did all that to kind of show that it was really difficult for him to leave Inter Milan, that he had to go and do this. The reality of it, he obviously had a deal in the back before the final was even played. But there's incredible symbolism. You know, you win the treble and you drive off in a car with another team. Is it significant that there are four English clubs in the quarterfinals for the first time in 10 years? Obviously, it's quite a barren period since we last had three clubs in the semis in 2009. What's changed in 2019? I mean, it's always dangerous to read a little too much into that because, you know, two of those four clubs, Liverpool and Spurs, were nearly knocked out in the group stage and only advanced thanks to more goals scored away from home in these weird tiebreakers. But I think, more broadly speaking, there was a period when for different reasons, Premier League clubs probably underachieved. And I think what these four clubs have in common is that three of the four, City, Liverpool, and Spurs, have real top-of-the-line A-list managers and with experience uh, to different degrees in, in Europe. United, probably less so, but they had that amazing once-in-a-lifetime comeback against Paris Saint-Germain, and obviously they're looking to build and transition with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer now. Is it the managers or is it other foreigners bringing up the rest of the team as well? I think more broadly, it's simply budgets and resources. You know, every year, uh, UEFA publish what they call their benchmarking report, which can make for really boring reading if you're not into it. But effectively, you have the club turnover and you have the club wages. Now, we know that wages are probably the single best indicator of success. The, the Premier League's top six clubs, so the four clubs who are there, plus you'd add Arsenal and Chelsea to it, you know, they regularly rank among the top 12, 15 in Europe. So when you look at it that way and you, you think of the Champions League quarterfinals as the as the top eight, it's not that surprising that, that four of them would be in there. But also there are some scintillating ties to look forward to. Now, what game do you think, if I was a neutral, right, what game do you think is top of the bill? I think when you look at the games that are probably in terms of, of history and, and glamour, uh, and storylines, Manchester United against Barcelona is obviously a really big one because two enormous fan bases that go around the world. You have Lionel Messi. You have the story of, of sort of Solskjaer coming back to the club to rescue them after the dark era of Jose Mourinho. Personally, I also like more from a stylistic footballing point of view, Manchester City against Tottenham Hotspur yeah. simply because those are two very creative managers. But with Solskjaer, how has he lifted the club so well? What is it about him that he's brought them out of these dark periods? I think the first obvious thing is he's not Jose Mourinho. He's kind of the polar opposite, right? So you hear of a guy, Jose Mourinho, who is cocksure, convinced that he's generally always right, a glittering CV, been there, done that, is a little bit manipulative. And I don't say this in a bad way. I mean, you have to do that. Probably most good bosses are like that to some degree. And then you have Solskjaer who comes in, you know, was managing in Norway. You know, he's a former club player. 
He, even you look at him, he looks like a looks like a little cherub, right? Even, yeah. not, even now that he's older, assassin. exactly. He comes in, and because he's got the tie with the club and the fans, he basically does a lot of the things that just does the polar opposite of Mourinho. He gets the team to attack more. He's always nice. He's often smiling, and I think the atmosphere just becomes so heavy under Mourinho that the players felt a little bit unshackled. Now, all that said, United's recent performances haven't really been great. So the truth is somewhere in between. You know, people sort of depict it as like Solskjaer's a genius and, and Mourinho was a fool. Probably, you know, there is some regression to the mean. Now, you mentioned Spurs versus Man City. On paper, you would go for City. If Tottenham managed to keep a clean sheet, do you think they could spring a shock? Yeah, we saw this last year to some degree, right? Manchester City played Liverpool in the quarterfinal last year. They were heavy, heavy favourites and Liverpool got their game plan right. They had a little bit of good fortune perhaps as well. Uh, some outstanding individuals on the day. I mean, this is one of those things about football, and particularly knockout football, that we often forget. This is a low-scoring game. Little teeny tiny individual things can go in and determine outcomes and have, have enormous uh, implications. We're going to speak to a couple of Liverpool and Man United superfans a bit later. Liverpool, I'd say, have got the kindest draw of the round with Porto as the opposition. I don't know much about Porto. How much of a threat do you think they are? I think a lot of people know that they're what you call a, a selling team. It's part of Portugal's sort of unique situation that they're in. It's a lot easier for them to integrate South Americans and then they regularly get them in, develop them for a couple of years and then sell them on um, for a profit. But equally, this is a club that's, that's achieved tremendous European results and that you tend to underestimate at your peril, as, as Roma found out in the last round. Uh, they have a tremendous defender, a uh, Brazilian guy named Eder Militão, who's uh, actually going to play for Real Madrid next season. He's definitely somebody to look out for. But you're right, on paper, Liverpool, I think, are pretty heavily favoured. But also, we said it before, uh, the tie of the round, Man United versus Barcelona. How big is that going to be? Are they the potential winners, one of those two, would you think? I think there's probably better teams out there than Manchester United. Certainly in terms of media interest, they'd be up there. Barcelona, most people probably have them, along with Manchester City and possibly Juventus. A lot of people sort of try to imagine a Juventus-Barcelona final so we can have Cristiano Ronaldo v. Lionel Messi again. I think those three teams maybe putting City ahead of them, are probably the top three teams in the competition. I think it would be a real upset if United eliminate Barcelona, just as it was a real upset when they knocked out Paris Saint-Germain in the last round. If we had a Juve-Barcelona final, Messi, Ronaldo, ask all the time, who's better in your opinion? Oh, don't do this to me. I gotta do it to you. no, no, no. I gotta do it. Maradona, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, show my age. Okay, so uh, stay with us, Gab, if you would. Right, it's our superfan moment, and we have Neil Atkinson, who's back again. He's from the Anfield Rap Podcast. Hi, Neil. Uh, hello there. How is everybody? Yeah, great, thanks. Great. Thanks. Listen, Liverpool's success in this competition is, of course, the stuff of legends. The great wins from the 70s and 80s. Of course, the miracle of Istanbul. What does the Champions League mean to Liverpool this season? Isn't the uh, the Premier League title more important? Bearing in mind you've never actually won it, Neil. Um, well, we've got 18 league titles. It's very important to point that out. But there is a situation where I think, obviously, most Liverpool supporters would rather win the first title since 1990 this season if you had to choose. But trust me, you know what I mean? I'm not going to turn my nose up at the Champions League. Uh, And Liverpool are terrific in this competition. It's been a really difficult group to get through. Uh, Everyone's forgotten that now. A lot of people are saying Liverpool have been lucky, but Liverpool's group was incredibly tough. And they did very, very well to get out of it. 
And we've had some fantastic nights in this competition, not just this season, but last as well. I'm really looking forward to Porto home and away, and I think that Liverpool can go on in the competition. And then we're talking about, hopefully, top of the league and Champions League semi-final. If you had to choose between Champions League or Premier League, would you choose the Premier League? This season, yeah. No shadow of a doubt about that one. It's been so long coming, you know, but Champions League is, is still absolutely brilliant. It's a great competition. It's a competition that means so much to Liverpool and has done for so long. Listen, I'd take any trip to Madrid at this stage to be in that final. Uh, and go from there. It's strange, really, because the timings are, are a little bit odd. You know, the Champions League final is three weeks after the last game of the season. So if we get there, whatever's happened in the league by that point, you know, we'll be ready to rock and roll in the Champions League. This competition does feel like it's something that belongs to Liverpool in a way in which it arguably belongs to no other English club. And that's not just because we win it, but it's also because Liverpool supporters commit so wholeheartedly towards it, enjoy it so much. And I think that that's the big thing, the thing that's missed Elsewhere is we don't see it as chore. We see it as a, a remarkable competition for the best footballers and really cut loose and enjoy. Porto at home will be a big occasion. A chance to get to the semi-final doesn't happen very often at all and we should not take it for granted. I'm going to turn to Gab now. Gab, you seem to have an encyclopedic knowledge. There aren't many fans who prefer their team to win a domestic title over the Champions League. Can you think of any other time where this has been the case? Man City always, right? Because they hate UEFA. Because the what? The bad walls, that's like... The, the bad walls? Is that what you said? Manchester City would rather... I mean, it's crazy as far as I'm concerned. Manchester City would rather win the league than win the Champions League. Absolutely maddening, but we are where we are. They're a terrible set of lads, and we'll just go from there. <laughs> yeah. Gab, go on. Anyone else? Well, uh, apart from the, from the bad walls, I think this is pretty unique. You know, we'll hopefully back me up on this. You know, there's a whole generation of people who've never seen Liverpool win a title. And for those of us from the generation before who think of Liverpool as the dominant, when Sir Alex famously talked about, you know, knocking them off there, is this one of those podcasts where you can swear? No. No, no do it. No. To say it in a nice way. <laughs> off their freaking perch. Yes. <laughs> so I, I think it's very loaded that way. And also don't forget, Liverpool have been to three Champions League finals since 2005. I'm not saying the novelty's worn off, but for Liverpool to win the title would be huge. I think it's, it's huge in a psychological sense that I think goes well beyond you know I think that I think that if Liverpool won the league this season I'm, I'm not going to say that Liverpool would retain it but I would actually expect a fair bit of silverware to come for this side across the next few seasons maybe including European it, we just need to get it done and get it done once and then I think firstly I think that more league titles will follow in relatively quick succession listen if Liverpool have still got a, a fighting chance of winning the title come May I've, I've got to argue that you know there'll be a lot of momentum there'll be a lot of feel goods and I think that that should sort itself out to some degree. Listen, people could always get injured, but they could get injured training, uh, to be honest with you. I think that, you know, I think if we're going to see Champions League games as some sort of chore, we're in real trouble. But there's something else as well. You know, Liverpool at the minute have got some fantastic footballers right the way through the pitch, you know, from the goalkeeper, Van Dijk, the front three, the midfielders are terrific. The fullbacks could be the best fullbacks in Europe at the moment on form. Those players want to be able to satisfy their ambitions playing for Liverpool. And their ambitions won't just be to win domestic titles. It'll be to win domestic titles and to challenge in the very late stages of the Champions League. What we can't do is wrap them up in cotton wool. I'm just wondering because I get the sense Liverpool are a little bit looking past Porto. I mean, certainly some fans are. I'm not suggesting you are. Yeah. Roma looked past Porto in the last round and that proved to be a mistake. Liverpool were in this weird situation where you lost it. It was five straight matches away from Anfield that, that you lost. Is that a concern that could somehow creep back or, or or was it, as you said, you know, the fact that the opponents were tough opponents? I think it was partly that the opponents were tough opponents, but I think Liverpool was still working the season out there. Napoli 
for instance, the Napoli game where we get beat 1-0 last minute, that game was sandwiched between Chelsea away and Manchester City at home. And I think that Liverpool then, you know, they're two, they were two enormous games for us. And we probably, you know, we got the results we needed in them, which was not to get beat. We, we paid for that with a, a bit of a loss of focus against Napoli. So I think it's been tough opponents, but I also think that, you know, Liverpool back then were just working it out a tiny little bit. I think we're a bit better now. I still don't think we're perfect. I still don't think we're good at sort of 1-0 or a situation where you want to see a game through like that. I think we can improve in that regard. And I'm not taking Porto lightly at all. When we beat them 5-0 last year, it was one of them where everything we hit went in. And I think that, you know, they came to Anfield, they got a 0-0, and yet it was a funny game by that point. But they're not most Porto, and I think that we're going to have to play really, really well to get through against them. I don't think we should be taking them lightly at all. i, I got to ask this, and I, I'm going to hold my hand up. Liverpool, for those who don't know, broke the world record for a defender when they signed Virgil van Dijk uh, 18 months ago. I thought, okay, this is crazy. It's way too much money for a defender. He'd had injuries. You know, it's not like he was 20 years old at the time and whatever else. He can't be this transformative. And I was dead wrong. I was completely wrong. Virgil van Dijk has been entirely transformative to Liverpool. Can I just ask Neil? And we have ways of going back into the archives of the Anfield rap, as you know, and, and establishing this. <laughs> Were you on board with a Van Dyke where you say like, yeah, this is exactly how my club should go and spend their 80 million. Or did you have some doubts? I was broadly on board. There was a couple of things around watching Van Dyke at Southampton, both in the little mini season he had before he moved towards. And also before then, where I think at times he looked just a tiny little bit lackadaisical. And I did worry a little bit, like for instance, I thought his partnership with Fonte was terrific. Uh, but I thought, well, that was a bit of a partnership. And there was another thing as well, that law from me, well, by the way, I like him, think he's a very good defender. But we bought him from Southampton and he hadn't done quite as well as we'd all hoped. But ultimately, I was thinking that this was, it was a big, bold move. But also, you know, by that sort of point with Klopp, I think Klopp's fascinating. And I think there's, if this comes together this season in terms of us getting to a Champions League final, say, and winning the league, I think there's a lot to be said for how Klopp's built this squad. Because what he's done, and I think he's done it without anyone else really sort of viewing his decisions through this prism, every decision he's made in the transfer market, broadly speaking, bar buying Stephen Colker on loan, has been based around at some point he's going to need to get 100 points to beat Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. He's got a, he's got a 100 point squad. And I think that that's what we've seen. It's not been conventional squad building. You know, when we needed a centre back, he decided to wait for the very best run rather than just get anyone. And that's what's marked them out as different from other Liverpool managers and what's marked the recruitment policy out as different. And, and I think it's hugely impressive, to be honest with you. I think it, it means at times people have got to be patient. And patience where transfers are concerned doesn't suit a lot of football supporters. But I think Van Dijk is, a, is the, the ultimate example of a man who, if I'm going to buy a centre-back, when I've got the ones I've already got, I'll have the very best one that I can find. And I think that Van Dijk's seen that through. One of the things that, that really impresses me about him is that he was also pretty humble and trusts the people around him who work at the club. I think it's a pretty well-known fact that when Liverpool signed Mohamed Salah, it wasn't his decision or wasn't his, his first option. He, he wanted to sign Julian Brandt and yeah. the club really pushed Salah and he kept an open mind and he trusted them. And obviously to say the rest is history. That's very rare to have a manager with that kind of humility, isn't it? And also to talk about that publicly, I mean, you know, that's yeah. not just a rumour thing. He said that out loud. You know, a lot of managers would, would would have their own views, be proven wrong, and then be able to represent it as their sign. And he's done the absolute opposite. He's used it as a touchstone to say, listen, I can't do all this on my own. I've got to be surrounded by these people. 
And I think that that's, you know, that does sort of show, and that shows his mentality. I think he does see it as, you know, well, his <laughs> wins are the team's wins. It's, it's funny. It's funny. I gotta ask you about Porter, but it's funny. I just want to make the point that he's basically the polar opposite of the manager before him because with Brendan Rogers, there's this thing called the transfer committee and, Every good signing was a Brendan Rogers signing, and every rubbish signing was down to the transfer yeah. committee. But um, just to ask you about, about about Porto, you said you're not underestimating them, but you're still pretty confident. I'm, I'm confident. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard not to be watching the side at the minute and looking at the performance they put in against Bayern Munich away. That has a real clarity of purpose about it, and you know, I think that the, this this Liverpool side is is a serious, serious football team. I don't see us putting a performance in at any stage in this Champions League competition akin to the one where we batter own 5-2, five, five, but it could have been 5-0. The flip side of that, though, is I don't see it flipping lightly. You know, I don't see a chain of events where Liverpool, Liverpool do something soft, do something daft. I think those days are over. And, yeah, I'm confident. I mean, how could you not be at the minute? But it's going to take some doing. And I think that there's a lot of players out there who will need to be on their A game. And you mentioned the midfield before. I think the midfield has at times been a little bit of a question mark for Liverpool. But the flip side is as well, you know, when it's great, as it was against Paris Saint-Germain at home, when it got them completely penned in and dominated that game and created that momentum. Roma at home as well, I mentioned a minute ago, you know, that a lot of that came from Milner and Henderson. We remember the goal scorers, but they, they created the pressure cooker of not letting Roma out until Liverpool was satisfied that day with, with five goals. I think if the midfield does that against Porto, it can force the issue against anyone. It's not attractive midfield play. This is not Tony Cruz and Luka Modric knocking it around, but it's hugely effective. And it's the sort of football that no one likes to face when you just can't get out your own heart. And I think that Liverpool can do that to Porto. And I think that if they do, they'll go on and win the game. And the tag. Neil, tell me, uh, United versus Barca. Whoever wins that, you're going to play uh, if you beat Porto. Who would you prefer? Well, I'm probably not going to be able to go to Barca because of the job and the uh, the, the way in which um, when the fixtures go. So if I'm going to go to a Champions League semi-final this season, I was lucky enough to go to Rome last year. Uh, it would have to be Manchester United. But I'd quite like... In 2007, the then champions uh, came to Anfield. It was Barcelona. But that day, a really young Messi. Uh, he played. We, we faced him home and away. I'm full-throated in the fact that I think he is, by some distance, the best player ever to play the game. You know, the opportunities to see him in the flesh uh, at Anfield. You know, they may not, it may not come up again. It may not be possible again. And so there is a part of me that would quite like for us to... You know, the point of this is to play the best teams. And I would just love to get the opportunity for Liverpool to play against Barcelona home and away. To play against, as I say, the best player who's ever played the game. Um, and you know, if, if 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 I was a Spanish football supporter, I'd want Manchester United rather than Barcelona. Uh, it's not it's not about that, but it's about it's about the novelty factor. And and there's nothing you know Liverpool, Man United, Barcelona, the three huge romantic European giants. But the, the rarity makes Barcelona that little bit more romantic, even though I won't be able to go to the away leg. Hey Neil, I got to stop you there. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you for joining us. Uh, always a person to never have an opinion, which I quite like. <laughs> Do good luck. Take it easy. Enjoy. Cheers, Cheers thanks. Buddy. Uh, Gab, uh, we're gonna have to let you go. Thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Well, thanks. It's been, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I'm so glad you've been here because otherwise I'd be stuck with Alex Lowe and that would be dreadful. Oh, that's charming. Thanks, Gab. <laughs> now, you know, it's funny because I listened to your, the UFC podcast you guys did. And as I come in and I see you guys through the glass and I thought, Goodness, that yeah. Rachel Stringer looks rather manly. <laughs> <laughs> and I was expecting you to talk with like sort of a lady's voice, but it didn't quite happen. Gav, thank you so much. Appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. ESPN, head in the game. 
Right, we've had the uh, Liverpool angle, so uh, let's have the Man United one. So welcome back, superfan Ed Barker from the United Rant podcast. Ed Barker, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well, yes. Hi, Ed. Alex here. Firstly, we've got to ask you about the new boss. Are you happy with that, fella? Yeah, I mean, look, it's the greatest job interview that anyone's ever done as a manager, isn't it? 15 wins, 20 games. He couldn't have gone any other way than to give Ollie the job. Do you think there's, you know, a bit of a talisman about him? Because, of course, his goal in the Champions League final in 1999 is part of, you know, the club folklore. One of the greatest comebacks in football. After an incredible win in the previous round, maybe Ollie's name is on the cup this year, do you think? <laughs> that may be stretching it a little bit too far. There is a sort of talismanic status about him, of course, uh, with the supporters. It, it didn't take any time at all for him to gel with them and for people to uh, find a very popular new song on the Stratford end uh, of course with, with the players it's more difficult though because uh, most of these players uh, were still in short shorts when United won in 99 so I don't think that means anything to any of the squad um, so he had to win them around uh, based on his coaching based on the results he got based on the, the feeling he created in the squad and that was really important uh, and of course some of that was based on his status and, and the feedback he got off the fans but also some of it was but just based on his coaching and the good decisions he made and his ability to turn around what was a pretty depressed and fragmented group uh, and unite them under one vision. Uh, you got Barcelona. What are your thoughts? Do you think it's going to be a tough game? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. No, easy. <laughs> yeah, it'd be like uh, where Bolton, won't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's going to be a tough game. I mean, uh, if, if you Messi's had to give got... us a score, what do you think? First leg. I- I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna go for a one-all draw, something like that. I mean, I, I hate making predictions. I, I think it's my. Uh, podcast co-hosts uh, at their own cast likes to point out i i predict a united win every single game and have done that for the best part of 10 years so uh, <laughs> it, you know and then and then i'm all doom and gloom when uh, united don't win so yeah maybe a scoring draw and i think that'd be okay um look again it, it's based on the the way united uh, like to play so i don't imagine that the pattern of how united will play or in fact the pattern of how Barca will play will change that much over the two games. So Barca will have a lot of possession. I'd expect them to have 65% possession, something like that, at Old Trafford. United will try and exploit any weaknesses at the back. And, and of course, Barca are going to throw loads of players forward. And you've got Messi, who's got 40 goals again across all competitions. Suarez, who's you know in and out this season, but is scoring. And tons of other great attacking talent. It's going to test um, the high quality back four that we'll be, be able to put out, including um, Phil Jones and Smalling, something like that, uh, is going to test them severely, isn't it? These are the games that we want as United fans and missed a lot over the last six years. But would you prefer the second leg to be at Old Trafford? I don't think it matters. Does it not matter? No, I, I don't think so. Not, I, I think not in sort of the way that Champions League football has evolved over the last five years where everyone is more apt to throw caution to the wind, perhaps save for Atletico Madrid, who are out, of course. The trend has been towards uh, pushing more players forward, uh, looking to attack, scoring goals. And you know, the number of goals per game has been going up, not hugely steeply, but it has been going up. Um, and, and then I just look at United's tendency to be stronger playing on the break uh, than when having to press forward. Uh, and I think the, the game sort of suits United, whether it's home or, or away. In fact, we struggled more at home than away under Ollie. There's lots of great memories for United in this competition, right? If you had to try and pick one of your favourites, one of your most memorable, which one would it be? Yeah, so, I mean, look, 99 is obviously the favourite. Yeah. Um, it's the one that brings the goosebumps out and the 
uh, you know, the room gets a bit dusty when I put on the VHS. How old were you then? I was in college, so uh, I was uh, 20. That, that's the, the time period that I was traveling home and away to a lot of games. I, I wasn't at that game. Big regret. I've been to hundreds, but not that one. I was uh, doing exams at university, so couldn't make it. But uh, yeah, it's still the highlight. It's uh, I rem- remember, I think, almost every minute of that run. Uh, I promise we'd do a re-recording, uh, live minute-by-minute commentary for our um, podcast listeners. Uh, so at some point we'll do that and I'll have to watch it all over again. So <laughs> uh, it's still the emotional one. 2008 was great, obviously. Uh, and for some United fans that are of a certain age, that'll be the favorite too. It's, it's not my favorite. I mean, it's a fantastic memory, of course. And then there are others, you know, against Barca, I've got some great memories. So the two, three old draws in the 99 season were fantastic. I still remember, and I was like, what, eight or something like that. Um, uh, Robbo inspired victory at Old Trafford, three uh, nil at the time in the mid eighties, early eighties. Love the tense games against Barca in the, the semi-final of the 2008 tournament, 0-0 at New Camp and 1-0 at Old Trafford. I didn't quite enjoy those finals in 1999-2011, got to say. I mean, it was a magical moment when Wayne Rooney equalised uh, in the 2011 final. Magical for a few minutes before it all went wrong again. So, yeah, great memories against Barca, great memories in this tournament. OK, so let's say you, you beat Barca. Okay, then you've probably got Liverpool in the semis and then possibly City in the final. Yeah. Easy? Easy, easy peasy. Well, we've already beaten Juve in Paris Saint-Germain. <laughs> so, uh, Barca, yeah, that, that, they'll be, yeah, they conceded more goals than us in the league this season. So they're clearly, they get at the ball, aren't they? Well, if you beat um, Barca, you might really fancy your chances after that. Won't you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, um, the realist obviously tells me that, uh, the chances of beating Barca uh, are, are not huge, and I, I haven't looked at the betting markets, but I'm I'm going to say that they're probably odds-on favourite to win this one. Of you know, they've got such a depth of talent um, right throughout the team, and they're obviously coasting in the La Liga this season. So, although they've got a tough game against Atletico just before they play us, which is a big one for them, but I would imagine that you know they will be able to rest key players if they need to. And obviously they can take their foot off the gas in a lot of games, as happens in La Liga. That won't be the case for United. Barca are favourites, for sure. Uh, so are Paris Saint-Germain, so are Juve before that. So we, we can hope, and, but we can enjoy it. And I think it's in many ways it's a free hit for United. No one expected United to be in this position, not with the squad and the way it was managed by Jose. No one expected United to be within a shouting distance of the Champions League either. So it's it's all feeling good and positive right now in a way that it wasn't for most of the season. Ed, thank you so much, dude. I love having you on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Uh, My pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, buddy. Bye. The big question is, who's the champion of champions, though, Alex? I've no idea what you're talking about. Head to head. Yes. Okay, me and you, there can only be one winner. No, so I've got a clue. Voice tell him. Yes, it's the head in the game quiz. Ah. Round one, true or false. Jamie first. Manchester City will become the first British club to compete a quadruple if they win the Champions League and the three domestic trophies. False. Correct. Celtic did it in 1967. Alex. Yes. The original Champions League mascot was champion Chipmunk, but only lasted three years after fans in Italy pelted it with peanuts at every game. False. False is correct as well. Jamie, Arsenal hold the record for consecutive Champions League appearances with 20. False. Is correct. Yeah. It's Dinamo Kiev. Alex, Brazilian forward Hulk 
celebrated a hat-trick against Palmer in 2009 by ripping his top off, revealing a green-painted chest, earning a second yellow card and ascending off. I want that to be true, so I'm going to say true. It's false, but it would have been worth it, wouldn't it? (laughs) Marvellous. Round two. Champions League winner or loser? Alex. Roberto Baggio. Uh, Winner. Loser. Not only did the Divine Ponytail miss the penalty at the 94 World Cup final, but also missed out on Champions League glory. Jamie, Paul Lambert. Winner. The the ex-Wolves manager. (laughs) Any opportunity to bring Wolverhampton (laughs) Wanderers in here? Correct, Jamie. Winner. I'm sure that was a guess. Nope. Alex, Gianluigi Buffon. Winner or loser? Oh, winner, definitely. No, loser. Still playing at 41, but destined to miss out. Jamie. David May. Ah, oh, winner. Are you looking at the answers? No, I swear. Do you even know who he is? Yes. What colour is his hair? Brown. It's blonde. Oh. He is a winner. The Manchester United substitute never played in the final, but was famously very visible in the post-match pictures. There we go. That's why the question is there. Round three. Multiple choice. Alex. Yes. Which language is the Champions League theme tune Zadok the Priest sung in? A. English. B. French. C. German. D, all of the above. German? All of the above. Jamie, the fastest Champions League goal was scored by A, Roy Mackay, B, Roy Keane, C, Roy Race, D, Roy Hodgson. Roy Mackay. Is correct. (laughs) Was that a guess? No. It was scored in 12 seconds. 10.7, actually. Alex, how many times have Barcelona and Real Madrid met in the Champions League final? A, five times. B, three times. C, once. D, never. I'd say never. I think we'd know about it. Is correct. Final question to Jamie. Is this the clincher? The maximum number of teams one country can have in the tournament is A, six, B, five... C4, D3. A6. No, it's... Four! It's five! five! It's five! No! The winner is... Me! (laughs) Not really. It's Alex. Thank you so much. Oh, I think I won that. So that's about all for this week, unfortunately. Please subscribe and review. Spread the love, people. Next week, Rachel will be back with me for a very special episode where we find out who's been voted ESPN Head in the Game's Athlete of the Millennium. Now, there's still a chance to vote if you go to Head in the Game Facebook page. Very simple. We'll announce the top ten and, of course, the numero uno. What's that? Alex, it's uh, number one in German. Oh, I see. (laughs) Until then, keep your... Head in the Game. Head in the Game. Got you. I I was going to say... ESPN, head in the game. Right, well, that was a lot of fun. There we go. <coughs> Just put the chair at the height. It should be for Rachel. <laughs> She'll be back, no doubt. Why you... Just get why you, microphone down to her. Why you just, just leave everything? Just leave it how it is. Oh, does she want to leave this scarf here for next time? Yeah. That's her scarf, is it? Yeah. Oh, I can tell it's hers. It stinks of diesel. <sighs> do you smell her scarf? <laughs> smell it? I'm taking it home with me. <laughs>